Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is the uh, 6th of the 3rd. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been okay, Gary. How are you feeling? Well, I must apologise for us not being here uh, last week. I'm pretty sure I had COVID. I'm not entirely sure I had COVID, but I feel in my heart that I had COVID. Well, Gary, if that's your lived experience of what you had, well, then I think we should recognise that you had COVID. I did have a uh, pre-upload which I recorded, Michael, after your illness. Just a series of short things I could upload in case anything went wrong. Uh, we are moderately sick. We are seriously sick. I was unfortunately too <laughs> sick to upload the tape saying that we were too sick to upload. <laughs> Sorry, when you said you'd pre-something, I thought, for, I thought pre-op was what I heard. Not when this... I don't know if this is the really the, the place or the time that we want to hear this, Gary. The tape I recorded for If You Die plays out with the British National Anthem. Why, Gary? Why? I just thought it was funny. I think it's the version the BBC will play when the Queen dies. I'm feeling so many things right now, Gary. I think it would be better that if we just moved on from this subject. Oh, uh, so you get the joke. I get lots. I just seek help, Gary. Seek help. So uh, in the grand old tradition of whenever we disappear, news just starts falling out of the sky. There's a war. And things are actually literally falling out of the sky. Uh, and if you happen to be in a place like Kiev or Kharkov, it's not a very pleasant place to be because of the things falling out of the sky. It is indeed war. Okay, first and foremost, I will say, I'm going to, then I will ask you, I didn't think there would be a war. Even though... Let's, oh, by, uh, we have to say absolute kudos for once to the CIA, which not only got it right that there would be a war, I think it even got the day, the date and the time right. So like half past three in the morning on a Thursday. It really was top notch. You have to think right now, there's somebody inside the Russian intelligence world who is fe- feeling rather sweaty as the dogs come looking because so... That level of intelligence seems to require somebody deep, deep on the inside. I thought he wouldn't go in because I couldn't see what he would achieve by going, that he couldn't by threatening to go in. And if he did go in, how was he going to do to stay in? It just, it seems, Gary, if you think since the Second World War, the record of large powers occupying other states. Fine, invade. You can invade all you like. You can take control. You can win a a wonderful victory in a relatively short period of time. But then you're left with the state and with the country and the people in the country. And if they're not absolutely sort of either couldn't give a fuck about it or waving flags delighted that you come, you just create this long festering sore, which are indeed explosive, sort of grill of war in your back garden. The Americans invaded Iraq twice, um, it seems to me, and it, that didn't work out brilliantly. The Russians invaded Afghanistan, the Americans went into, and not just the Americans, lots, the whole Western world went into Afghanistan. Vietnam was a bit of an issue, I seem to remember. Even the, when, God almighty, like East Timor, the Brits were fairly successful in Malaysia, but or Malay, but that was short term. So, he's in now and it seems to me that he didn't quite have what was your i mean if you had been putting a five pound in paddy powers did you think he would go in i suspected he might but i was also unsure enough about it that i thought it was prudent just not to comment on the situation and i thought he might go in for this reason yeah my particular interest in military affairs is neither strategic nor tactical it's operational the third branch which people tend to forget exists entirely from an operations standpoint the amount of troops he was putting there and the amount of weaponry uh, he was also stationing in the area was way higher than what you would need to scare someone mm. so you can put a fraction of what was put there on the border and it's enough for a military incursion enough to make everyone quite nervous about how this is going yeah it's incredibly expensive and quite logistically difficult to move troops en masse in the kind of numbers we're looking at. So you were looking at a considerable investment in getting those people on the border and keeping them on the border. And after a while, the longer that goes on, the less sense it makes for that to be a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we're seeing the Russian army seems to be suffering logistical difficulties all over the place now. You know, it has not been the best fortnight for the great Russian army, has it? If your TripAdvisor review so far are not great. It's hard to tell on this basis. Everything coming out of the Ukrainian theatre is suspect. Absolutely. Yeah, we have 
to be constantly aware of us that whatever we're reading or seeing or hearing, we have to be aware that this is has to be mediated as tainted material. Yeah, the Russians will lie about what is happening. The US will lie about what is happening. The EU will lie about what is happening. And most importantly, and I think this is perhaps something people have liked to glaze over, the Ukrainians are going to lie about absolutely everything that is happening. So, yes, the Russian army seems to be suffering logistical difficulties, running out of fuel, issues with food. But it is unclear to what extent those problems are widespread and to what extent it is instead Ukrainian claims or shall we say, faked images. Yeah. And by the way, I don't hold that against the Ukrainians. If the Ukrainians think they're fighting an existential fight, it would be a bit weird if they weren't willing to lie to people. Yeah. I, uh, Gary, before we go, because I, I, I might forget it afterwards, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the great brouhaha that was going on, you're saying, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised they wouldn't lie, but, you know, morally, they'll, they'll fire rockets at people and blow up tanks, but they wouldn't lie. In, you may have noted the horse, the horseshoe theory of politics being demonstrated, not just in Ireland, but across, uh, the Western world, where, the horseshoe theory being the idea that if you go far enough on the left and far enough on the right, eventually, actually, they will they will head they will meet to join together. And it seems to be that the, the elements on the right and elements on the left have come together uh, to be rather more pro, shall we say, pro Putin, pro Russia than the elements in sort of the more to the words the centre, where loving Ukraine has become the absolute uh, position du jour. Anyway, in one of those discussions between a, a few friends of ours on the right, where they were talking about. The, hip, the look at this. Look at what the Americans did to, in Serbia. Well, look what the Americans did. The Russians are only doing the same thing. And Gary, what did he say? Yes, he did. He said, for me, the thing that I think is the absolute worst is the hypocrisy. Not the war. Not the war. And the temptation to respond. I very rarely actually respond on social media because you just end up in some kind of a mud bath fight with mad people. <laughs> the temptation, right? You find the hypocrisy is worse. I think it's the blowing up the women and the children with the bombs is worse. But, you know, I could hear the voice of the late Norm Macdonald ringing in my ear in my ears lots of interesting stuff I think has happened around the war and the western response to it and the nature of some of the things that have happened some of which I think are helpful and some of which seem to be um, very unhelpful I suppose on the the, the point you were making there about people uh, supporting Russia or supporting Ukraine lots of people have some very strong views on this that I don't think are proportionate to their knowledge of what is happening or the history of this region. Mm -hmm. But then again, nothing stopping people from having those kind of views. Problem is, oftentimes, the thing that you do that makes you feel good is not actually helpful. One of the most cited findings in the, the literature of international relations is that external aid to a combatant in a fight dramatically extends the fight. And you might think that is a good thing, because Ukraine is being invaded. Yes. I mean, from the Ukrainian point of view, it's a question that well otherwise we would have been invaded and conquered and done and dusted in 48 hours so for us the longer this is extended that the longer that means that they haven't actually conquered us it is the the fact that a conflict is extended but yes packed into that of course is casualties injuries and deaths obviously the more you extend it the more people are going to be are going to be and maimed and dead, and that's something that I don't know if we fully take on board. You know, now the Ukrainians have been very heroic. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be like sneery and dismissive about. I do think that there has been an, a, a, an appreciable and genuine level of. Wow, bravery, you know, courage in the face of impossible odds, attachment to home place, willingness to defend your your patch and your women and your children and your husbands and your your because there's ladies and so lady soldiers there too, which I have to say is ad, I find admirable and you know there's a lot of toxic masculinity going around in Ukraine, which I think yeah good good on you toxic masculinity we need a little bit more of you I obviously don't think it is toxic but you know uh, but dead people. Yeah, I think the point you made there of, it's a win for Ukraine if they repel the invasion. The concern is, what happens if you do enough to extend the conflict, thereby massively increasing casualties, but not enough to stop the invasion? And you end up in a place where, well, Russia takes the country. It's painful, but they take it. Or Gary, what about, uh, I think the worst scenario is when they almost take it, but they 
while they have the flags over the over the building and they control the passport office and maybe and the radio but they don't effectively control the population and you're left with this long effect festering sit effectively you could call it a guerrilla war or a civil war and just this goes on and on well, there are people for whom that is actually the perfect outcome here it's not something that will be thought about in ireland because we're basically children in relation to international diplomacy it's not something that'll be talked about by the eu because they've forgotten how to think that way the uk and america to a lesser extent though will absolutely have people in it who would love Ukraine to become effectively another version of Afghanistan for the Soviets. Why, because this effectively means that there is a co- a constant drain on energy and resources, like a, like an open wound on the side of Russia that would massively weaken them? Absolutely. Thereby weakening Russia as a global player and undermining their entire sphere of influence. But being a bit of a bitch for the Ukraine and the Ukraine, the people in the Ukraine. No, and the, I mean, the way you would do that if you wanted to do it would be to give you Ukraine a great deal of weaponry. But not enough. But not enough to win. <clears throat> not enough to win. Mm, that's a bleak, re- that's a bit of a bleak picture of the soul of the people that might be having that kind of plan. Oh, but there are definitely those people in particularly American and uh, British policy circles. The EU just doesn't even think about things like that. The EU is like a, just a happy little friend who just does things that feel good. I don't know now to be, I, think, I can imagine the French, the French might think like that. The French do, but the French are not the EU. No, and the French have always wanted to be friends with Russia, to be the conduit. And while the Americans and the Brits are being the anti-Russia, the French will try to be the pro. They were the same with the Ottomans. The, the French were always the, the conduit to the port in Constantinople. And Macron, apparently, feeling very annoyed, very betrayed, Gary, very betrayed by Russia these days. That they, they lied to him. He got very cross. I mean, it's, it's a bit childish to be annoyed at someone lying to you <laughs> in international relations. Are you saying he lied? I mean, the, the standard assumption is if a diplomat or an ambassador is talking to you about something of relevance to their country, they're going to lie to you to some degree. What's the, defi- the, the, the definition of an ambassador was a decent man sent abroad to lie for his country? I, I have no idea how things are going in Ukraine. I, to be honest, I don't think many people do. I think a lot of people are saying they do. It seems the Russians are advancing. It seems the Russians are also having extensive issues. And I suppose there is a question of logistically can they get this done and I don't rightfully know pressure is being heaped on them I mean the level of sanctions and the level of withdrawals from Russia is beyond anything I have seen in many many years and I think beyond what most people expected the West could actually do absolutely Uh, this is why I mean again we are two people sitting in a room in Ireland speculating on the thoughts of the actions of the great in their distant palaces but one could speculate I think reasonably that Putin did not think that the kinds of sanctions that have been imposed and the speed with which they have been imposed would have would 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 have been the case. I mean, there have been things, Gary, about this which have just you can see when you're talking or or reading uh, serious heavyweights in this in these areas that they're just astounded by. I those are not. Yeah, I think that at the beginning of this, for example, the the Germans came under a lot of criticism, a lot of pressure because the Germans were blocking the level of sanction and the type of sanction that was really going to impact on Russia, but also was going to massively impact on Germany. And, the German economy and the issues that the German the Germans have around uh, secure uh, sort of economic security based on energy production and that's something I think we should talk about is the way that this has reframed the whole energy issue in the debate in Europe and brought a clarity to it which I think may be a, a positive outcome at least for Europe here. Was a topic that we've brought up before, the idea that energy policy is not just energy policy, it's also a security issue. One thing I, I think we're now seeing mention of that I don't think was initially quite understood is the potential of any invasion of Ukraine or anything involving Russia and uh, export restrictions to impact on agriculture. I mean, between both uh, actual uh, export of grains and in relation to fertilizer exports. Also, I mean, 
particularly if you're just as an aside, but I, I get back to the sanctions. But I mean, we, we're looking at a situation where a bag of fertilizer was 19 euro last year. A couple of weeks ago, it was 44 euro. You got the the price of nitrogen has more than doubled in the last year. I mean, this is going to have a huge, and those prices are only going to go up, by the way, because also China has put a block on the export of potash uh, until um, May or June of 22. The Canada is a big is a big exporter of these of, of potash and of nitrogen, and they're going to come under their production is going to come. It's going to be bonanza for them, but we just won't have the the the, the goods to go around. But I was going to say about the Germany, whatever happens, it was probably uh, see reflective of a change in German public opinion. You saw all over the place in forty eight hours what forty years worth of German politics or policy towards the east, what they call the Ostpolitik which was the brainchild of Willy Brandt, has just gone, gone. Um, I mean, stuff like that. They, for years, <laughs> the the Donald, by the way, there's all sorts of stuff being said about the Donald. Donald, it has turned out, got a couple of things right here, by the way. I mean, one of the things that Do- the Donald was constantly nagging the Germans about was putting their, putting their two pence in, getting up to 2% of spending for NATO, you know? And they have now decided gone for, they're going to add another 100 billion a year to their current 50 billion a year spending, which is incredible. That they, they're going to bite the bullet on the sanctions. That they are actually, for Germans, this is a huge issue. They are going to send weapons into a war zone. Gary, that's a massive thing. Their whole loss politic has just disappeared almost overnight. And then the last thing, I mean, Gary, I challenge that not only not only the rest of the world, not even you, Gary, thought the Swiss would join in. No, I, I did not see that one coming. And that has to be a kick in the ghoulies when, for, for Vladimir when the Swiss are joining in. Yeah, that must have been a moment where Vlad sat back in his chair and thought, if Vlad is a reasonable and rational person, so it's a lot of people are saying, oh, he's a madman. People like Constantine Kishin say he's not a madman. He's just a man with a different way of looking at the world. He is a Russian czar. And we have to remember that they, not everybody thinks like liberal Western Europeans. I, I have seen, and this has long been a problem with the EU, with their diplomatic corps. They live in a world in which the old style of politics is dead. So it's about how we can work together, Michael. Everyone is better off. It's not about these zero-sum games where, you know, we have to stay strong relative relative to others' strength. And they've never they never really understood how to deal with people like this. But in the wake of the invasion, I started seeing people, like highly respected diplomats and academics, saying that um, Putin could no longer be considered a rational actor. And it seems that these people, when they say that someone is a rational actor, mean that someone is an actor who acts rationally to them. In that rationality means that you think like them. Within my moral uh, political paradigm, to act like this would be irrational. Therefore, you are irrational. But they don't get the fact he's not not operating within their paradigm. Nor do they get the fact that a war can be a rational action. Of course it can. There is a conflation of rational and moral. And brutal and horrible. But that doesn't mean for that individual or a group of individuals, it might be a perfectly rational thing to do. It might be a grossly and horribly immoral thing to do. But yeah, it could be perfectly rational. General go-to example I use from this is, is Marcus Aurelius. Like you read Marcus Aurelius' thoughts and they're all about stoicism and you know the beauty in life, Michael, and accepting your place and all of these lovely sounding things. And then you read about his military campaigns. And then you get into the genocide of the Germans. Yeah, and then you realise this man was just crucifying men, women and children. Absolutely. And had absolutely no concerns about it because it's just what needed to be done. And they were only Germans anyway. But there is a hesitancy to accept that slaughter is sometimes rational. Because rational is a good thing, and bad things therefore cannot be rational. Actually, speaking of the um, of morality, one of the things I think has been quite interesting here is lots of people have been very quick to point out the amount of propaganda uh, Russia is putting out. Yes. And it is a considerable amount. But people have been far more hesitant to point out that Ukraine has been pushing out rather a lot of propaganda and stuff that has gone beyond traditional propaganda into outright myths and disinformation and dangerous oh. myths and disinformation. I mean, things like claiming that a NATO member was giving you fighter jets. And not not just a member, but several members were going to give us fighter jets. Or that Ukrainian fighter pilots would be based out of uh, bases in a NATO country. Now, that particular one, and I think that was a... That, that particular country 
took that very, very badly because it's obvious. I mean, again, if you're Ukrainian, this is a perfectly normal, correct and logic, rational approach, Gary. If we can get the Russians so fucking annoyed, pissed off, paranoid, whatever, they say, right, we're going to go into, we'll say Estonia, but let's say better than Estonia, Poland, because it's bigger and more important. Uh, we're going to we're going to lob into Poland or we're going to bomb Poland. It's a NATO country. Therefore, now NATO is officially and definitively involved. NATO has a contractual treaty duty now to defend Poland. And for the Ukrainians, that's a great outcome. For the Poles, for NATO, for the EU, for the rest of the world, Russia and NATO going to war is probably a bad outcome. Ah, I mean... What small nuclear exchange between friends? Well, you know, there was only, what, 20 years effectively between the First and the Second World War? I mean, we've been waiting for World War Three for a long time. I think it's become quite clear that the Ukrainians want to draw in Europe, America, and particularly NATO countries into this, which, again, I can't hold against them and is a perfectly legitimate strategy. The fact that they seem to be trying to do that, partially true appeals to emotion, which is perfectly fair, that's just your old standard propaganda, and it works well, and partially true just lying continuously. But I think we need to reflect. Now, we're not in NATO. Deo gratis, alleluia. But there has been a huge wave, and a perfectly, I would say, understandable and a reasonable wave of sympathy and support for not the Ukraine, but the, the people of the Ukraine, the Ukrainian Mama and Papa. Now, the problem is we need to mind ourselves of where what we do while we're in this state of intoxication with our admiration for these fine, courageous people. We want to make sure we it, we are not the lads who go out of a night, get pissed in the club and discover the next morning that we have made these promises to people that we, we met in the queue for the taxi, that they can come and live with us. Because we might come to regret that in moments of sobriety. Now, now first of all, we don't. Do we really... When we talk about the kind of support and people, I've heard people say, we say we should send in planes, we should provide bases, we should all this thing. Well, no, we, we, yeah, the we I'm always, are you going to be going fighting? Are you going to be putting on the combats and the Kalashnikov and going off to shoot, get shot at? I, well, if you are, well, then calm yourself and breath for porridge, etc. But do we really think it's going to be a good idea for the for the rest of Europe or NATO to be drawn into this conflict against Russia, which is a nuclear power? And if, by the way, you're right, and Mr. Putin is not a rational person, is that really the scenario you want? No matter how much you admire the Ukraine, is that is that an improved situation? Secondly, we have to consider the effectiveness of any of this. I mean, how, what are, how, to what degree are we going to have to be engaged for this to actually, as you said, Gary, produce an effective outcome in a reasonable period of time? So that the Russians are out rather than get mired down in something which is just going to go on and on, become incredibly destabilizing. I would actually, on the point of an ongoing insurgency and how there will be people in America who will be quite happy with that. And actually there will be people all over the place but most of them don't have the capability to do it. Uh, the Washington Post report, repeat, uh, reported there the other day that one of America's major new plans is for a Ukrainian government in exile waging an ongoing guerrilla campaign. Perfect. Um, on the point of, of, of effectiveness, Clausewitz said that war is a continuation of policy by other means. <laughs> that is usually seen. Or the usual reading of that is that that is an amoral wage war to get what you want. No, no, that's not... Anyway, sorry. No, that, that wasn't... You're, you're right, that wasn't the point. The point was that war should be used as a tool in cases where it is reasonable to do so, and that war should not be fought based on personal animosity or emotional attachment. There should be a policy goal that can actually be effective. Mm -hmm. And if it can't, you shouldn't have a war because then you're just killing people for absolutely no reason and you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. If anything, it was an argument for... You know, a proper understanding of the costs of war and an idea of what you can actually do. And I'm not sure that has been seen in some of the responses to this situation. When the issues happened in the Crimea, there was talk about NATO, but what I think was actually the trigger for it was the increasing closeness of Ukraine to the EU. Absolutely. Oh, yes. It's, I think this NATO thing, oh, well, NATO's expansionism has put, has threatened, uh, the Russia. And this is an inevitable consequence of, which we predicted. We all predicted that. I think that's, that's just wrong. I think the chronology is wrong. The historiography, it's history is wrong. When the Russia didn't respond at all, our object, when Estonia joins NATO, it's the Ukrainian 
I, I think that the reality is, and if you if you have you been reading the, the stuff coming out of Russia for the last number of years, and I remember my late friend Michael talking about this, Russia is far more threatened in a, in a sense existentially for as not as a nation, but rather the oligarchy that runs Russia is more threatened by the extension of the of the EU and the creation of successful trade state, trading states around it, like the Baltics, like Poland, etc. And it was the Ukraine. Entering into trade agreements in 2014, that was the real, that was the spark rather than any NATO issue. On that basis, the the reaction to the Ukrainian crisis that most make me think, most made me think that may perhaps be ill-advised was the acceptance by the EU that Ukraine should perhaps become a member of the EU, a full member. Yes. As a sign of solidarity. If you want to have a sign of solidarity, let's send flowers. When I heard that, there was a sort of, well, you know, Ukraine can't join the EU if there's no Ukraine. And that might have been the sort of thing which you would have been better off waiting until the tanks left. <laughs> That's horribly true. Because if if it is actually the EU that they are concerned about, and you're already in the Ukraine, and you know when you leave that they are going to try and join the EU, and the EU seems open to it because of the invasion, well, there is now an incentive to make sure that that never happens. Yeah. And I I think perhaps that might have been worth considering more before we publicly started saying things. I would also say, and this is very selfish, etc., the Ukraine doesn't meet the standards required, historically, uh, it just is not ready. It's not, and not, and it, there are structural problems, economic problems, there are civic problems, there are governance problems with the Ukraine. The Ukraine is not a suitable candidate for accession to the EU. Certainly not now, and certainly and not for a long time, so I think. No, and I, I mean, I know some people involved in Ukrainian politics. And let me just say, Ukrainian politics is corrupt at a level I, I don't think we understand anymore in the West. Maybe in Sicily. Maybe in Sicily. But these are, again, the sort of things that you can't say right now, because I think people are right on certain things. Morally, you could argue that there is an impetus to ignore certain things, because they are helpful to Ukraine, and Ukraine has been invaded. And that morally there, we should be willing to overlook things. I think the problem we have is that while you can make the moral argument on those things, it's much more difficult to make the ethical argument for those things. So I think, shall we say, the willingness of media and politicians overlook certain things that should absolutely not be overlooked by people in their positions is morally justifiable and ethically bad. Yes. Particularly in relation to the press, reporting on things that they know the Ukrainians have said, and you know maybe there's not a lot to back it up, but it's good for Ukraine, so we're not going to question it. That, I think, is, is ethically all over the place. <laughs> but morally, Michael, you know, arguably the, you know, the right course of action. That's the problem, isn't it? Can we just go back for a moment uh, to talk a little bit about the energy issue? Because I think, for me, one of the things that's interesting about this is the way it's forcing Europe, and not just uh, people in the West, to reframe all sorts of issues and ideas and relations. Now, one of the big surprises here about the sanctions, as we we mentioned before, was the way that the the Germans had a 48% 48 48-hour volt-fast on 40 years of Ostpolitik. Now, one of their problems is, and the, because the, the, the germ, they, one, they had say for, one of the problems they had with shutting down SWIFT and certain banking things was they wanted to have a guarantee that there would be at least one bank account open, Gary, that would work so that they could pay the Russians for their gas. So the Russians wouldn't stop sending the gas because they hadn't paid the bill because the Germany didn't want the lights to go out. And it's perfectly reasonable for Germany not to want the lights to go out. Germany has been the principal proponent. uh, And one of the reasons that we thought the Russians weren't going to get into any big trouble for a long time was the, what, Nordprom? Am I getting that right? I always get the word wrong. Nordprom? Nord Stream? Whatever. The, The gas pipeline, which the Donald said shouldn't be built and the Germans shouldn't and more widely, the Europeans shouldn't become dependent on Russia for their gas and their energy supplies, because that would be a bad idea to leave themselves open. The Donald, again, was not on right when it comes to that. So we're now facing on a situation where Germany uh, is kind of bollocksed 
there was a, a mixture of things. They had a, there was a train crash, and then there was a tsunami in Japan. So Germany decided to close down its nuclear power stations. Um, there is now actually a, a proposal, Gary, that the life of the nuclear power stations be extended, which is a way of saying we're going to extend, we're going to do the work needed to extend them because they are actually better, and more modern, and uh, more efficient than the, most of the French nuclear generation. So, which is the German way of saying we could do this, and then maybe in a couple of years we'll open them up again. But just here's there's an there's an article in Forbes by Schellenberg, which I think is interesting. Well, interesting. I think it's incredible. So far, our the, the prediction by twenty twenty five, and the figures are I don't know, pretty right. The Germans have been subsidizing renewable energy at a serious level for a long time now. And in two years time, they will have spent 580 billion, which is more than half a trillion, just for the sake of saying it, half a trillion dollars to make electricity, which is twice as expensive as France's. But, and here's the kicker, if your concern is climate, 10 times more carbon intensive than France. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to get into the whole climate thing, but it seems to me that a lot of what has been passing for energy policy in Europe is actually a massively hypocritical virtue dance, where what we're saying, we're not going to do that. We're not going to dig for, drill for oil. We're not going to explore for gas because we are going for renewables. Now, in the meantime, we're going to buy oil and gas from the Russians and for the Libyans and the other people like that and the Saudis because, you know, we have to get some. But we're not going to use our own because we were... Well, I'm sorry. That's great if you can keep a straight face, but it's incredibly stupid. Actually, speaking of things that have been disrupted by the war, there's one very important thing which hasn't really been disrupted at all. Can you guess what that is, Michael? Something which hasn't been disrupted. Are we talking economics, economically, uh, production? Of very high importance. Oh, um, vodka? No, no, no. I give up. What has not been interrupted? The flow of gas. Well, yes. Don't you find that incredible? The thing that I find absolutely fascinating by it is that in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all the sanctions, and the fact that we're almost at the point of war between all these countries, the gas keeps coming. The Russians haven't turned it off. The Germans haven't stopped. But is there not a proposal on upcoming to sanction energy exports? Oh, there is. But the interesting thing here is that the Russians want the money. It's fair enough. They do. And the Ukrainians want the help of the rest of Europe, who want the gas. So it's in no one's interest to actually do anything about the gas. Gazprom, actually relatively positive on the whole Ukrainian situation so far. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, there's been the occasional explosion, but everyone is playing very nice with the gas line. But, lads, I mean, can we not just sit back and say, okay, we are now absolutely clearly in a situation where we are relying we, I say we as Europe, not we as Ireland, we in Europe are reliant for energy on the Russians. And it turns out, Gary, there are aspects to Russia which are unpleasant to us. There are aspects, not everything, but aspects like the way Mr. Putin uses his army as an extension of his foreign policy and stuff like that. We don't like that. So, But we are in a country, Gary, where we have made it illegal we have made it illegal for people to go out and look for natural gas in our waters. Even though natural gas is by a distance the, the cleanest form of carbon fuel and would be an absolutely central tool to use in the transition from carbon to non-carbon based energy production. But we've made it illegal. We've made fracking in this country illegal, Gary. Even though... We're told by people in the business that there's enough gas under Leitrim to keep us going for half a century if we would only take it out of the ground. But no, we've made a law because we we don't like that stuff. We don't like that fracking. We don't like the drilling in the sea for the gas. And, and this is not just us, to be fair, although we have been particularly good at it. We've done this all over Europe. And at the same time, well, we'll, so we'll, take, it, we'll take oil from Saudi Arabia which is such a fucking bastion of human rights. 
of course, and has such a fine record on uh, its relations with its other near near neighbors, neighbors and places like Yemen. And is also still involved in yeah, the, the Yemeni war. The Yemeni war. I mean, you know, the Yemenis obviously don't matter that much, Gary. You know, I'm told they're a dark, swarthy people and maybe therefore unattractive to the to Western cameras, even though they get bombed the fuck out of on a regular basis. That, I think, has been one of the really interesting uh, parts of this. The Western response to it has been beyond anything we've seen for any of those other wars. And maybe partially because it involves Putin, partially because it involves Ukraine. But I would have to imagine the Russians and, to an extent, the Chinese feel a bit uneasy about the force people came down with on this. Yeah. And the West has had the ability to respond like this. It just hasn't had the will to do it. So it is interesting to see the will can still be whipped up. Yeah, and I think that's maybe a, a surprise to the West itself. The West is kind of looking at saying, oh, look at us. Oh, God, jeez, I didn't know we could still do that. It's like a guy who hadn't played tennis really for a long time and gone down to the court and by God, I'm hitting the ball well. I didn't know I could still... I Still got that backhand. I still have my... You never lose your backhand, Gary. You never... It's there. You keep it out and punish them down the line. And I think the Chinese reaction has been very interesting to us. At the beginning, there was that sense where it was you know, implicitly rather pro- Russian and we're not just in there. I think everybody who in the, on the inside believes that Putin had phoned Beijing before ever he launched the invasion, uh, just to make sure, you know, keep them on side, keep them in the loop. But, you know, back in the good old days of Mao and Stalin. But there's been a distinct, the language, Chagari, in the last week or so, is a very distinct change there. And I think Chinese are looking at this thinking, okay, we're bigger and stronger and more economically important than Russia. But we we thought we could push them around to an to an an infinite degree. Maybe we can't. And at the end of the day, while everybody looks at China in the West, we tend to say, "Oh well, they're just so powerful, we can't do anything." You know, we have to buy their shit. And if we stop buying their shit, that Chinese economy is far more fragile than people give it credit for. I personally think that actually the next big financial economic crash is going to come out of China because I. I think there's, they've been hiding flaws inside there, the forced GDP targets and for a long time, but that's a whole other subject. Yeah, I mean, they've been moving money around into problematic areas. And I'd say at this point, everything is so tied together that anything ever stops moving, the entire thing will break apart. Some of, some of those banks, Gary, have to be sitting on just so much non-performing and non-performable debt. The danger point is when you, you they start losing their rate of growth. Because if you keep growing at incredible rates, you can afford a lot of stuff. But the moment you stop, like a shark. It's, it's like those guys that kept buying property in the boom and they would leverage the property they'd bought on the bit. They'd be able to leverage the increase in price that happened over the last three weeks to go to the next. But once you hit a point where actually the price of properties either become static or it starts to drop back and you can't leverage it anymore, then you're in trouble. And in fact, the one of the things I can't imagine the Chinese would have been wildly excited about was the idea that the Russians were going to potentially de- have a destabilizing effect on the dollar because they'd built up these massive foreign reserves and they were going to sell dollars and buy rubles in order to support the ruble. And as it turned out, the ruble has taken an absolute shellacking. you got people out, we have reports from Moscow, where people are going out to buy their iPhones this week, Gary, because first of all, they don't know how much the iPhone is going to be next week, and they don't know how much the ruble is going to buy next week. So people are out there spending on hard goods in order to say, well, let's buy them while we can. Yeah, the Russian economy is, the estimates of the contraction it's likely to have over the next quarter are incredible. You're just the sort of things you couldn't see a developed economy uh, being hit by. It will be interesting to see what the what the follow on effects of that are because while Russia, it's on paper, its economy is kind of garbage, just relative to its size. When you look at what it produces, it's a lot of uh, primary goods and a lot of intermediary goods that are used in the production of other goods in Europe. Yes, so. 
Russia's economy goes to pieces or they stop exporting, that could actually have a pretty substantial impact on countries that would on paper seem to be far richer, far more resilient. No, Michael, the late Michael would have said, used to say to me that you should be careful about looking at the Russian economy and thinking either too positively or too negatively. He said, the, he said that one of the effects of sanctions, he said the, the sanctions were the old sanctions, not the new super sanctions, but the old sanctions had actually created a kind of a, a ultimately positive response within the within the the Russian economy and it kind of forced a certain level of entrepreneurship and creativity in response to the absences because they couldn't simply import it from the West now they had to make it themselves. At the beginning he said they'd be pretty crap at it, but now they're getting pretty good. But but I don't think that Putin I've never had again, what the fuck do I know? <laughs> Putin is a KGB hunt, right? That's where his training is. KGB guy there he is in Berlin in 1989, burning all the files because the Americans were coming. He's a key. I don't think that Putin really gets the economics of this. And whatever about the effect on Ukraine and whatever the outcome of the future, I don't have the sense that Putin has really understood the kind of hit and medium long term hit that the the Russian economy is going to take. Even if this resolves itself in the next month. No, no, I have seen a great deal of people. I've noticed that there are, there's a class of person who's very positive towards Putin because Putin is hated by all of the right people. Yes. And some of those people have a certain belief in Putin that is nearly of infallibility. I think when you look over Putin's career, he has a fondness for large, dramatic, risky manoeuvres that generally work out for him. Because if you can bring enough violence to bear, a violence of action, you get away with a lot. But you don't have to be an idiot, and you don't have to be mad to make a mistake. And this whole, oh, some sort of grand plan here, and how can we tell if he's failing or winning? I, I think you can tell this is not going as it was intended to be. I think that appears pretty clear. Whatever... Whatever is the truth of what's happening in the Ukraine and the details of that, we are not going to know. We can only try and sift it or sieve it through our own experience and decide what we want, what we choose to believe and what we choose to take with a pinch of salt. It's not going quite as planned. I, it cannot be the case that he expected to be where he is two weeks into this. They had to, they had to believe that they had, by this time they would have taken Kiev and installed some kind of regime. That no longer seems like an option now. But that exactly, exactly. That that, that what, so what is the option? And I, I said to you before, I hope because I'm sure the clever people that run our worlds, Gary, must be desperately trying to find a way right now of letting Putin out of this. And I, I take your point that there may be people in, say, in Britain or in the United States for whom a long extended war where Russia has this suppurating wound on its flank which draws its energy and vital force and makes Russia this much weaker country that for them might be a good outcome. But assuming that they don't get the final vote on this, for the rest of us, there has to be right now, okay, He's not mad. He's rational. He's now in a position which he didn't expect himself to be. But we have to find a way to let him get out. I find that a baffling prospect. I think your your problem here is the people who want to turn this into a quagmire are the people who have the sort of ideological position where they are best suited to know how he would get out of this and to create those kind of opportunities. And they don't have any incentive to do that. But those sort of strategists, they absolutely be the sort of people you'd want to do something like this. But if they think the winning move is Russia spends the next 10 years in Ukraine slowly being whittled down, why would they help you? The old Kissinger problem. He could help. He's just not going to. <laughs> yeah. Kissinger problem. Yeah. I could do that. But I'm not going to. Yeah, so the old, I am absolutely aware of many ways we could end this war peacefully, but I don't want the war to end. And you see, I, I just don't really want it to, it's, you know, this, this war is working for me, you know. It's not that I'm unsympathetic. 
And I can see that for the war, maybe not working for you, but for me, it's working fairly well. Yeah, and I don't know how this ends. It's possible that it goes badly enough for Russia that they will try and see if they can hold. I mean, they're already holding peace talks and ceasefire talks. And the problem there is Russia has a history of holding those talks and just using <laughs> them as a uh, an opportunity yeah. to resupply. And if the Russian forces are suffering from quite bad logistical issues, a ceasefire could just give them time to try and get their shit together. There's a fascinating article in one of the military reviews talking about the uh, problems that might be in the Russian army. If, if I root it out, I'll send it over to you. You can put the link up because it's well worth the read. And he said that there had been a great attempt, which has much been talked about in the West, about the reform of the army and that the Russian army now was root and branch reform, everything you've gone. But he said, actually, as often happens, yes, a guy was put in to start reforming and he did start reforming and he introduced lots of it. But, and this sounds absolutely correct, Gary, one of the things that was very important in Russia was the relationship between the army and between armaments, manufacturers, suppliers, you know, mm. lot, a hell of a lot of money was involved in this. And he, he, he said, well, you know, there's all sorts of ridiculous levels of corruption and inefficiency and shoddy manufacturer. No, 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 this is not good enough. We're going to have to move. And do you know what happened to him, Gary? When he started doing that kind of stuff, getting involved in people's pockets, he got the bullet. I mean, figuratively, he got the bullet. And he was replaced by a man who has been in every administration in Russia since 1992 and is still in the administration, which tells you this man is a very, very skilled political operator. And you don't survive in Russia that long by going into people's pockets. So an awful lot of the reforms were basically rolled back. A lot of the manufacturing base changes were rolled back to the extent. I thought this was fascinating. Even in its elite forces, even its elite and conscription was reduced from a two year to a one year process. 24% of the elite echelon units are made up from one year conscripts. They have only in the last few years, in a handful of years, have they started to train their NCOs. Historically, the NCO would have been the backbone of the European armies, the, the British army, the, what, the US. It's, you know, classically in the movie, you'd have the young lieutenant who was technically and legally in charge, but he would always go and defer to the experience of the grizzled sergeant major, you know, who was a professional soldier. And that NCO class was the backbone of those armies. Doesn't exist in the Russian army. So, it may, but here's the, this is the thing that really got me. It's only around something like seven or eight years and maybe longer, but it's really recently. Did you, you may have known this guy. I did. Until the Russian army did not use socks. They used foot wrappings. And it's only in the last decade or so that in the reform of the great Russian army, they have abandoned the use of foot wrappings and taken on the sock. Now, I'm beginning to wonder about the efficacy of army that has only recently discovered the technology of the sock. Mm. Anyway, it's it's just an opinion. Should have just gotten really into Kriegspiel. <laughs> Kriegspiel, for those who don't know, was a Prussian uh, war game invented in the 19th century. They were big into the war games in the sort of late Victorian period. Yeah, there's a direct line actually from Kriegspiel to Dungeons and Dragons. Anybody wants a really funny account of thing, if you get hold of Carl Coburn's biography, uh, I Claude, the description of him, play, of his uncles playing a war game with a group of officers from the the Japanese Imperial Navy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, they have they, in the in the game they've sunk uh, some of his freighters or something. Or, battleships anyway and they're moving along and he said no 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 the timings are wrong you can't move to this point on that dice throw throw because you and he said no but we can he said you know that would that allows us five hours and he said yes but you're not considering the time that you would have used up taking prisoners taking survivors out of the water to which the japanese officer says we didn't take any survivors (laughs) (laughs) Which afterwards, forever afterwards, his uncle would 
rave about the Japanese. They left them there. They're my men in the water. And the sharks, the sharks came closer and closer in the rain. The sea turned red. Of course, this obviously, this was a game pure in his imagination. You could see these men. But he did say ever afterwards, never trust the Japanese Navy. So, you know, maybe war games actually do teach us lessons. The Persian army's use of Kriegspiel was credited with some of their abilities. But it was very interesting because the rules were very complex. And But what the Persians did was they would bring in like old artillery people to serve as referees. And they would basically just go, well, that's not how it works in real life. So we're just going to do it this way instead. <laughs> that's how far that gun can shoot. That's how far. And, that, and even if it says that in the textbook, that's just not happening. But I, I don't know how this ends. I don't think anyone really at this point knows how it ends. Is it possible it, it goes so badly that Russia withdraws? I don't know. That would seem very damaging to Putin internally. Well, that's the... You know, how, is it possible that there's a palace coup? And much like um, Khrushchev, Putin is retired to his dacha uh, to go fishing? Oh, I think it's more likely Putin has a heart attack if that's going to happen. Well, yeah, I think you're probably right. Or maybe a... <laughs> A heart attacker. Maybe he gets COVID. But you see, that, that creates its own problems. If if Putin thinks that a loss here could actually lead to his own uh, disposal or death... Then he's more in de- incentivized to make sure he doesn't lose. The mats for, well, maybe Ukraine doesn't get to be a place anymore, yeah. starts swinging wildly. Which is not what you want when you're dealing with a nuclear power. Because then things like perhaps a small defensive nuclear explosion start becoming a lot more rational. Just a little one. I mean, only just to, just to show. And that they still work, because some people seem to think they don't. Gary, I will leave, I think we should, we'll, we'll, we'll let, it's a beautiful day here, I imagine. It's a beautiful place. In many places, we should let our dear listeners once out to roam the green and happy valleys of Ireland. But before we go, I want to leave you with, you talk about sanctions, you know? This is the sanction, I think, that really will have, yeah, this is the one that broke the camel's back. Did you know that the word judo association, or whatever it's called, has taken away Vladimir's black belt? I'm not a, I'm not a terribly familiar with judo, but in most martial arts I'm familiar with, the world body does not have the right to take away something given by an accredited dojo. Well, I think it's a terrible thing to do because, you know, it's a bit like saying you can take away your degree in philosophy, like you've never done it. I think it's very upsetting. Uh, but they have done this. I don't quite understand what the process is. Does somebody come around to his house and say, we'll have your back, all of your black belts, please? So, and I would have thought he would have been to get some more black belts made up if he really wanted to. But that just goes to show how serious we are, Gary. We've taken his black belt away. But until... Hopefully, by the time we are back on Sunday next, all of this will have been resolved and peace will once again reign across the steps of the Caucasus or whatever. It's probably not great phrasing, given that the only peace we'll ever know, Michael, is that of the grave. Yes, and let's, let's try and keep that peace for another week. I would say, therefore, God bless you and mind you, mind yourselves. And if you're looking for a holiday destination... Go west, young man, not east. Bye-bye. All the best.